Good evening, everyone. My name is David Elwood. I'm the dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I want to welcome you to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum for this very special event. Um, our speaker for this evening is, of course, President Rafael Correa um, and from the Republic of Ecuador. So welcome. We're very glad to have you, sir. Um, I also want to distinguish, to uh, mention just a couple of other distinguished guests, in particular, uh, Natalie Kisele who is the ambassador of uh, Ecuador, who's joined with us. And there are a number of members of the minis various ministries and cabinet uh, from Ecuador, others uh, in the audience of great, great renown. Thank you all for being here. It's a, it's a great pleasure. So let me just say a couple of things before I begin my introduction, just reminding everyone about the basic ground rules of the forum. This is really the premier place uh, at Harvard University where people, uh, heads of state and others, have a chance to speak. And we only have a few very simple rules. Uh, the first simple rule is that anyone that comes and speaks here on this platform at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School must take questions from the audience, free and unrehearsed, unfettered questions. We don't select them. In exchange, while they are speaking, they are allowed to speak. They are not interrupted. They are not, uh, 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 there's no catcalling or any of that sort. And so that's the simple deal. And so if you are unable to follow those rules, we'll have to ask you to leave. Um, indeed, I think this is, these exchanges are spectacular and in this very intimate environment. So um, let me just simply say that, um, let me now turn to introducing our, our speaker. Um, that lovely video that we opened with makes me wonder whether we shouldn't all just leave right now and get on an airplane, uh, since um, it is uh, truly one of the, it's a, an enormously beautiful nation. Uh, with beautiful people, rich culture, obviously diverse geography from the Andes to the Galapagos. Um, and our speaker tonight uh, is an advocate, a scholar, and a political year who served as president uh, for over seven years. Uh, his focus on poverty, inequality, the poor more generally, strengthening the economy, charting an independent foreign policy course for Ecuador, and his passion and strong personal presence have made him an enormously, enormously popular in Ecuador and an inspiring figure for many across Latin America and beyond. At the same time, he has been uh, controversial. Um, some have been troubled by his handling of the press, his disagreements with the United States, his willingness to challenge NGOs and others um, at times. He was raised in a working class family in Guayaquil, the largest and most populous city in Ecuador. He went to Catholic University there. Uh, he earned a degree in economics there. Um, he went on to gain a master's of economics uh, in Belgium, another one at the University of Illinois, and got a PhD in economics in 20, uh, 2001. Uh, as an economist myself, I um, deeply admire such a route. Um, he has held numerous positions in government, uh, including Directory of the Ministry of Culture and Education, Economy and Finance Minister. He served as a consultant on numerous national uh, and international projects. He has three books, 20 scientific articles, presentations around the world. Just five years after getting his PhD, uh, he was elected to the presidency. Um, and 
Mr. President, I must say, as an economist myself, it is my impression that Americans would never be willing to vote for an economist for president. Um, they would think we would be, at best, dreadfully dull and, at worst, uh, uh, really worrisome. Um, so you must reveal your secret of how you turned economics to uh, political uh, prowess. But uh, uh, the president's mixture of both progressive and traditional economics uh, is quite unusual. Um, less than two years into the presidency, at the height of the global recession, the government defaulted on $3 billion in sovereign debt. President Correa uh, called it illegitimate and immoral. Uh, the president has been critical of U.S. and foreign uh, policy, po foreign economic power. And yet the U.S. dollar remains uh, the, uh, the currency, and the U.S. is the nation's top trading partner. The economy's been buoyed, buoyed by oil revenues, tourism, and government spending. Ecuador's economy has been growing very robustly between 3 and 8%, certainly among the top uh, in Latin America and even the world. Economic growth and the good living program have led, uh, for the poor have led to poverty levels dropping from 38% in 2006 to below 29% today, according to the World Bank. And increased government public spending has gone to roads, bridges, schools, and hospitals. Um, and the president is continuing to focus with his great passion and the like. Uh, as I mentioned, some of his policies have been controversial. He has regularly been willing to criticize the media, calling it mediocre, incompetent, inaccurate, um, and a part of a, a structure of corruption and, and accomplice in national disasters. Um, he has opposed abortion in most circumstances and been critical, criticized for his views on gay rights. And last year's decision to start extraction near the uh, Sunni National Park has been criticized by environmentalists. Still, his supporters point to a, a, a remarkably popular, consistently very popular president who has uh, helped, been strong for, uh, after decades of, of weak leadership, strong economic progress, his clearly independent foreign policy positions as evidence of strong and dynamic leadership. Please join me in welcoming President Rafael Correa from the Ecuador. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to everybody. First, I would like to express my profound gratitude to Harvard University, its officers, professors, and students for this invitation. También desde Ecuador nos están siguiendo centenas de jóvenes en algunas universidades ecuatorianas a través de internet y de video, así que un saludo a los jóvenes estudiantes ecuatorianos. As you may know, before entering politics, I was a university professor. Moreover, I had the opportunity to earn a master in economics and a PhD, also in economics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, during four of the happiest years of my life. That is why returning to academia renews my spirit, particularly as the differences between academic life and political life are so great. Whereas in academia, it is a sin not to tell the truth, in politics, it is practically a sin to be truthful. <laughs> in academic life, you find simplicity, veneration for the truth, and usually the best of human nature. It will not normally occur to anyone in academia to intentionally lie. In politics, although there are also many good people who seek to serve, unfortunately, 
all too often you still encounter the work of human nature. So thank you. Thank you for offering me this opportunity to return to the academia. Allow me to tell you about a fascinating country, the most compact, mega diverse, diverse country in the world. If we consider both terrestrial and marine biodiversity, Ecuador has the largest number of species on the planet in a territory just over 109,000 square miles, about the size of the state of Nevada, where one finds all climates and microclimates imaginable. You just have seen a video promoting Ecuador. In Ecuador, we have four walls. In a single day, a tourist can have breakfast along the beaches of the Pacific with fresh seafood, then have lunch at the foot of Cayambe, a majestic Andean mountain, snow-covered year-round, ride on the equator, and finally, ride on the equator, this snow cup, and finally, have dinner deep in the Amazon jungle. The next day, after a flight lasting less than two hours, our tourists, amazed, can be in the Galapagos Island, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. Ecuador loves life. Our constitution is the first in the world to grant rights to nature. 20% of our territory is protected in 49 reserves and national parks, among them Yasuni Park, a jungle treasure and a world biosphere, biosphere reserve where in just one third of a square mile, you can find a greater variety of trees than in all of North America. No doubt, given its diversity and geographic location, Ecuador, Ecuador is the eco-center of the world. In Ecuador, in seven days, you can sample off of Latin America, its beaches, its mountains, its jungles, its islands, and most important, its people. The Argentinians very proudly proclaim, the Pope is Argentinian. My dear friend, Dilma Rousseff, the president of Brazil, Argentina's eternal rival in soccer, says, well, the Pope may be Argentinian, but God is Brazilian. <laughs> in Ecuador, we don't have any problem with that. Certainly, the Pope is Argentinian. God is probably Brazilian, but paradise is Ecuadorian. <laughs> you are always welcome in Ecuador. Dear friends, according to the 2012 United Nations Human Development Report, during the 2007-2012 period, which coincides with our administration, Ecuador is one of the three countries in the world that advanced, advanced the most in terms of human development, improving its ranking from medium human development to high human development. Poverty in Latin America is not the result of scarce resources, but of inequality, a consequence of perverse power relationships where only a few have dominated everything. By changing these power relationships in the service of the large majority, 
through profoundly democratic processes, processes, we have succeeded in our seven years in office in becoming the leader in Latin America in reducing inequality, as measured by the Gini coefficient, by eight points. This reduction is four times greater than the average for Latin America, one of the few regions of the world where inequality is decreasing. We are also one of the three Latin American countries that have achieved the greatest reduction in poverty. In the period from 2006 to 2013, poverty has fallen from 37.6% to 25.6%. And for the first time in history, extreme poverty is below the double digit level, falling from 16.9% to 8.6%. Overcoming poverty is the moral imperative of humankind, not only because it is the greatest assault on human rights and freedoms, but also because today it is not the result of resources scarcity, but of exclusionary systems. Ecuador also boasts one of the most dynamic economies in Latin America, as the Dean said, with an average growth rate of 4.2% for the 2007-2013 period. In contrast, in contrast with orthodox economics, which called for reducing wages and sacrificing labor rights to supposedly generate employment, we have increased wages. And currently, we have the highest real wages in the Andean region. We have also ended precarious employment practices such as tercerization, tercerization in Spanish, there is no translation to English, tercerization, which enable a company to hire its workers through a third company and thus avoid any of the usual responsibilities of employers. For example, at a labor trial in 2007, the largest cement company of Ecuador declared that it had no employees. During the long and dark period of neoliberal policies, in pursuit of competitiveness, competitiveness, I ha always have problems with this word, our working class was sacrificed with falling real wages and mechanism of labor exploitations, euphemistically called labor flexibility. In countries that maintain high rates of unemployment, and did not even have access to unemployment insurance. This intensified the gap between labor and, in and capital income shares, which is one of the greatest sources of inequality in Latin America. For instance, in a developed and equitable country like Sweden, for every dollar generated, 35 cents are paid to capital and 65 cents to labor. However, in the case of Ecuador, the same dollar is distributed inversely, 35 cents to labor and 65 cents to capital. This has always been difficult to change because of the dilemma of having to choose between labor exploitation and unemployment. In Ecuador, we resolved this dilemma with creative and unprecedented measures. The traditional minimum wages 
has always existed in our laws, but we introduce another category, the decent wage, defined as the wage that allows a family to afford the basic cost of living with their total household income. With the new legislation, employers can pay the minimum wage to avoid a greater evil. That means unemployment. But no company can declare profits if it does not pay the decent wage to every single worker. Even though some had predicted terrible implications for the private sector, sector, the effects of this measure have been impressive and have surpassed our expectations. Since it was implemented in 2011, average wages began to rise. And this year, without any negative impact whatsoever, the minimum wage is already equivalent to the decent wage. For us, labor enjoys supremacy over capital. Yet, in contrast to classical socialism, which proposed abolishing private property, we use modern, and in some cases unique, instruments to eliminate tensions between capital and labor. The great challenge facing humanity in the 21st century is to achieve the supremacy of human beings over capital. With societies dominating markets, not markets dominating societies. The market is a great servant, but it is a terrible master. We believe in societies with markets, but not societies overruled by the market, where, li where lives, people, and society itself are treated as merely one more commodity, all in function of that entelechy called market. And we are very proud of the social gains we have achieved, such as ensuring equal opportunity to access higher education. For instance, Ecuador has the greatest number of poor people studying in universities in Latin America. This is as a result of the new constitution, which establishes public higher education at no cost. We are also playing a leadership role regionally and internationally in integrating persons with disabilities into society. We have achieved nearly full employment among people with disabilities who are able to work. At the outset of our administration, thanks to effective management and technical rigor, we were able to buy back a large part of our external debt at market value, that is, at about one-third of its nominal value. As a result of this successful repurchase, the external debt service was reduced from 24% of the national budget in 2006 to 5.3% 5 in 2013. We also renegotiated the oil contracts, known as contratos de participación, signed in the 1990s when the price of a, of a barrel of oil was around $16, from which the state received just $4 or $5 per barrel. When the price of oil showed up, the oil companies started earning multimillion dollar profits. Now, 
we have contratos de servicios, where the distribution is just the opposite. A fixed fee per barrel is paid to the oil company based on a reasonable rate of return, and the rest, no matter the market price, goes to the owner of the resources, the Ecuadorian people. As a result of efficiency, of efficiency gains in tax collection and efforts to, to fight tax evasion, tax revenues in Ecuador have tripled, despite some tax reductions and tax eliminations. The tax burden has increased from 15.5% of GDP in 2006 to 20.1% in 2013, meeting the Latin American average, but still far below the 31.1% average for the OECD countries. This has, allowed, this has allowed us to achieve the highest level of public investment in Latin America, 15% of the GDP for 2013, while the outstanding public debt as a percentage of GDP is barely 24%, far less that that, than that of developed economies. Public investment has brought about uh, major transformations in roadways, ports, airports, telecommunications, electrical power generation, the justice system, citizen security, and systemic competitiveness in general. At the same time, the renegotiation of the external debt, the revised all contracts, and decrease in tax collected, taxes collected, had freed up considerable resources to pay the most important debt, the social debt. Whereas in 2006, 4.8% of GDP was earmarked to the social sector, in 2013, this figure has increased to 11.4% of GDP. In absolute values, 4.3 times more is invested in education than in 2006 and 4.5 times more in health. This is important. The distribution of resources reflects the power relationships within a society. And the data clearly shows, beyond any doubt, that if historically the ones in charge in Ecuador were the creditors, the bankers, the international bureaucracies, today, it is the Ecuadorian people who are in charge. And let's talk about human rights. Ecuador is one of the seven, only seven countries of the 34 in the hemisphere to have signed absolutely every inter-American human rights instrument. As in any state where rule of law prevails, crimes are prosecuted, not persons, yet, Precisely because finally we are all equal before the law, we face attacks from the historical powers that were always above the law. The logical consequence of, the gains, of these gains is the political stability Ecuador enjoys today. After the serious economic crisis of 1999, when biased policies and management led to the general failure of the banking system, the economy shrank by 7.6%, unemployment shot up to almost 
the national currency was eliminated and the dollar was adopted as a legal tender. As a result of the crisis, millions of Ecuadorians emigrated, destroying families and tearing up the social fabric. The instability was such that up until 2007, no administration was able to complete a term. In 10 years, there were seven presidents. Ecuador was an example of everything that could go wrong with a country. Today, Ecuador is one of the most stable democracies in Latin America. Since 2006, La Revolución Ciudadana, the name of our political project, Revolución Ciudadana, has won 10 consecutive elections, including two presidential elections in the first round, which was unthinkable in Ecuador's recent history. We have the highest public approval ratings across the continent, as Devin mentioned. According to the Mexican polling firm Mitofsky, which performs an annual evaluation of approval ratings of 20 presidents in the Americas, the Ecuadorian government is the only one that has consistently achieved outstanding ratings with popular support of around 80%, despite having been in office for seven years. Latin Barometer, a public opinion study conducted each year by a Chilean organization in 18 countries of Latin America, puts us in first place in the categories of satisfaction with life, long-term economic expectations, and support for democracy, as well as in fairness in the distribution of wealth and trust in the state. The report characterizes Ecuador as a success story. As you can see, democracy has been, has been firmly established in Ecuador. Not only democracy in the formal sense, but real democracy in terms of people's access to rights, equal opportunities, and dignified living conditions. This is the so-called Ecuadorian miracle, even though there are no miracles in development. The impressive changes that have occurred in Ecuador have come as a result of a fundamental change in power relationships. Today, in Ecuador, despite all challenges we face, it is the Ecuadorian people who govern. Our greatest accomplishment is having overcome the hopelessness in which we found ourselves after the crisis in 1999, the result of neoliberal fundamentalism. Queridos jóvenes, dear students, they say that Christopher Columbus was the first economist because he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. <laughs> and everything was paid for the government. <laughs> was paid for by the government. In any event, in any event, if he had been an economist, or if an economist had accompanied him, he would have 
concluded that Latin America's development will be more rapid than that of North America. While both regions have abundant natural resources, in the former there were already well-organized societies, such as the Incas, Mayas, and Aztecs, and more advanced technologies. This is one of the great enigmas of development. The reasons are many and com complex, but no doubt one of the key reasons is the elite class who dominated and continue to this day to dominate Latin America. An interesting analysis of the effect of the domination of certain elites and institutions they create for their own benefit was done by Deron Asemoglu, a professor of MIT, and James Robinson, a professor at Harvard, in their book, Why Nations Fail. Their analysis and accurate, albeit late, institutionalist and political economy approach demonstrates that the institutions, policies, and programs of a country depend on who holds power. This had already been noted centuries early by the French thinker Frédéric Bastiat. I quote, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men living together in, a so in society, they create for themselves in the course of time a legal system that authorizes it and moral code that glorifies it. End of quote, if I, I end of quoting. Development is basically, dear friends, dear students, development is basically a political problem of who is in charge in a society, the elite or the vast majority, capital or human beings, the market or society. The greatest harm that has been done to economics is to disassociate it from its original nature as political economy. We have been led to believe that everything is a technical issue and in not considering the power relationships within a society, <coughs> we have been made subservient to the dominant powers. Paraphrasing the great economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist that does no, uh, doesn't acknowledge question of power is completely useless. Based on, uh, on an adequate and in-depth analysis of the Ecuadorian economic crisis of 1999, and beyond naive technocratic interpretations, one concludes that it was the political power of the bankers in collusion with the national and international bureaucracy associated with the financial sector that destroyed the national currency and shifted the impact of the crisis to the state and to society as a whole. To that end, they did not hesitate to reduce controls on the financial system, drawing up a new constitutional legislation to suit their needs, and then tearing up that same constitutional laws when they no longer serve their interests. The fundamental conclusion drawn from this should have been the need to free the state from the groups that were controlling it. However, the combination of ideologies, special interests, and incompetence, as well as the desire to believe in miracle, miracle cures, 
led the country to renounce its national currency and adopt the dollar as legal tender. As a result, Ecuador was left without a national currency of its own, but the power of the banks in the country's economy and polities continues unabated. Another example is the renegotiation of the national external debt in the midst of the crisis, which nominally reduced debt by 40.9%, exchanging it for new bonds. The truth is that there was no debt reduction, since a value much higher than the market value at the time of the renegotiation was imposed. In fact, the renegotiation was made at a similar market value to what the majority of bondholders had paid before the crisis. The market value during the crisis should have been the starting point of the renegotiation, as it was later in Argentina. Why then was the obvious not done? Simply because the renegotiation did not have the objective of minimizing the debt payments of a bankrupt country. The objective was to guarantee, guarantee the highest return to speculative financial capital. In fact, the Minister of Economy at the time presented the offer to renegotiate with the express argument that its objective was, and I quote, to provide the participants with a significant increase in the market value of the prices of their bonds, end quote. In other words, in the worst crisis in the nation's history, our negotiators were worried about the creditors recovering the value of their bonds instead of trying to resolve the external debt problem once and for all. As if all the, all the advantages the creditors obtained from a rent country were not enough, beginning in the year 2000, all economic policy was geared to ensuring that the bonds of Ecuador's external debt be quoted at the highest possible value in the capital markets, thereby generating windfall profits for creditors and at the same time driving up the cost of a potential repurchase of the country's debt. The centerpiece of this policy was the nefarious Ley Organica de Responsabilidad, Estabilización y Transparencia Fiscal, imposed by the IMF in 2002, which created a fund with a very long and complicated name, Fondo Estabilización, Inversión Social y Productiva y Reducción de Endeudamiento Público, or FEIREP. This fund was the, to be financed mainly by, the, by state participation in the private production of oil to be transported by the new pipeline for heavy crude, crude oil, whose inauguration was planned for the following year. In what has been perhaps the only situation of its kind in the world, 70% of these resources by law was earmarked for the repurchase of the public debt, the largest anticipated budgetary allocation in Ecuador's history. All this artificially drove up the value of the Ecuadorian debt bonds, transferring huge resources to bondholders. In other words, while 
while in other countries, as in the United States, sharing insider information that results in illicit gains for financial asset holders is a criminal offense. With the FAIREP, such activity was established as a national law in Ecuador. One can try to understand the FAIREP as promoting the virtue of savings. However, in order to do so, one must have the capacity to save. But in the case of Ecuador, the opposite was true. There was a need for financing. The situation was so absurd that while the country sent hundreds of millions of dollars from the FAIREP abroad, yielding approximately 2% interest annually, at the same time, it had to borrow a rate greater than 8% annually. It should be noted that as Minister of Economy and Finance of the Republic of Ecuador in 2005, I had the great honor of leading the successful effort to have the National Congress repeal that infamy called the FAIREP. Public spending, <coughs> because of these fiscal responsibility laws, could not grow beyond 3.5% annually in real terms, except for the debt service. In other words, if Bill Gates had come along and told us, I will give you $10 billion to invest in health, education, etc., we will not have been able to accept the offer as we will have been breaking the law. What was the political economy behind these laws that any surplus should be used to pay the external debt and the ideological fundamentalism that any investment should be made only by the private sector. Historically, Latin America has been dominated by elites who have excluded the large majority from the benefits of progress. And with their short-sighted attitudes, even hindered greater progress for, for themselves. Today, at the world level, level we are dominated by the interests of big capital, what I call the empire of capital, especially the financial one. The lack of regulation and supervision, as well as the extreme greed in the international financial system, mainly in the United States, resulted in one of the greatest economic and political crises of recent years. The investment banks were allowed to grow unchecked until they became too big to fail. <clears throat> At that point, the rhetoric of non-state intervention was over. The crisis meant a reduction in the value of the assets of the middle class, mainly their houses. But paradoxically, the fortunes of the wealthy and the financial profits of banks are now at record levels, while family incomes have barely recovered their pre-crisis value. That is also at the root of the European crisis. Everything is at the service of capital, especially financial capital, with the complicity of supposed economic science and of the international financial bureaucracies, ideology is disguised as science, the theoclassical economy. They repeat outdated recipes of austerity against human beings and in favor of capital. These policies are called Hooverian 
in reference to US President Herbert Hoover, who had the beginning of the Great Depression in the 1930s in the United States, deepened the crisis with measures of this sort. Why don't they do the obvious? Why do they keep the worst of the worst? Because the problem is not technical, but political. The problem is one of relationships of power. The solution to the crisis involves citizens retaking control over capital and society regaining control of the market. Dear students, professors, friends, the problem with development is that there are many necessary conditions, but none in itself is sufficient. There are many other factors that determine the development of a country, such as science and technology, culture and values, and external restrictions. Power may be in the hands of the large majority, and one may, uh, may be able to attain more equitable distribution, but yet have only misery to distribute. Science and technology as drivers of wealth are fundamental for development. Moreover, I believe that the political, economic, and social systems that will prevail in the future will be those that allow for the greatest scientific and technological advancement, but also, and this is very important, their best application for the common good. That is probably the secret of the success of the United States, a country where the top 1% of the population controls 35.6% of the wealth, and the top 10% controls 75% of the wealth. When economic power is so concentrated, it normally destroys a society. But as this system has made possible major technological advances and with, with them increases in productivity and income, the life of all have been improved. The other fundamental factor for development is culture, understood as a set of ideas, beliefs, visions, and values about the world and society that are transmitted socially. The culture perspective has been used to explain development, for example, by, by Max Weber in 1905 in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It is clear that a culture of innovation, of risk-taking, of freedom, but with responsibility and excellence, overcoming paternalism and victimization, propels the development and further generation of technology and innovation. But there are also external restrictions. For example, the Latin American Structuralist School, specifically Raúl Previch, introduced the concept of unfair trade, expressed through declining terms of trade, which led to the development of the strategy of import substitution. Nowadays, this external constraint continues with a new and unjust division of labor. Before, <coughs> underdeveloped countries produced raw materials and hegemonic countries produced high-value-added industrial products. Today, this division is expressed by rich countries generating knowledge that is, knowledge that is then privatized. 
and by our countries providing environmental goods that continue to be treated as free global public goods. Simply, by compensating environmental goods and services, there will be an unprecedented global redistribution of income. Once again, this is a problem of power relationships, but this time at the international level. Just imagine for a moment if the situation were the opposite, that the providers of environmental goods and services were the rich countries and our countries were the polluters. Almost certainly by now, we will have been invaded by the rich countries to force us to pay a fair compensation. Dear students, the world order is not only unjust, it is immoral. It serves the most powerful and double standards abound. In our example, the global, the global public goods produced by poor countries should be free, whereas the public goods produced by, by hegemonic countries should be paid for using institutional barriers such as patents. Dear audience, to understand what is happening politically across Latin America, one needs only to look at the history of the United States. Despite being the oldest democracy in the world, the US took centuries to fulfill the principles of, of equality and freedom embodied in these founding documents. The conviction that the US was in fact a democracy existed even while suffrage was the sole province of wealthy white men and African America, Americans were enslaved for a century and subjected to brutal racism and segregation for another century after their emancipation. We find ourselves faced with a similar paradox in Latin America today. When the Latin American elites, including their media, speak of freedom and equality, they speak only for themselves. Like America's founding fathers who preach equality yet themselves were slave owners, they are incapable of understanding that these fundamental rights should apply to everyone. Poverty in Latin America is not the result of a lack of resources, but mainly of inequality, resulting from a perverse power structure where historically the few dominate the many. But in, ending, but in ending the privileges and advantages historically given to select groups, we face fierce opposition for, from these same groups. Many US politicians, and many perhaps US citizens, do not like it when leftist governments who are in power in the majority of South American countries achieve such success, like Ecuador. The US is the most powerful country on the planet and one of the most successful in the history of mankind. But it is a huge mistake to think that all the values of the United States are universal values and should prevail everywhere. But for those who want to monopolize the definition of sublime concepts such as freedom, they should well understand that, that there can be no freedom without justice. I believe 
in individual liberty. But without justice, it is close to slavery. And that justice can only be achieved through collective action. And this is once again the politics that have been so demonized, understood as the way in which a society consciously makes its decisions. In Latin America, where not just economic, but political and legal inequality plague our continent, seeking justice is the only way to achieve true freedom. Today, those of us in Latin America who try to transform paper democracies into true democracies are subversively attacked by those whose status and power are being challenged. These individuals claim their freedom of expression is being denied when in fact they seek impunity for the media to manipulate the truth. They make accusations that the human rights have been violated because for, one, for once the law has been applied equally to everyone. And they cry dictatorship and authoritarianism because they cannot bring to the government to submit to their whims and interests. Many Americans consider Abraham Lincoln to be the best president in history. Yet, tyrant, despot, fanatic, crazy, were just some of the insults thrown at him in his fight to abolish slavery. There is much to learn from Lincoln's example, namely that equality and freedom must trump popularity and expediency. All men are created equal. They are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words were written when the United States was an aspiring democracy. In Ecuador and across Latin America, we also hold these truths to be self-evident and we are making them a reality, not just for certain people or at some future time, but right now and for everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. President. We now have time for questions. There are four microphones located around the area here. One is right here. Do we have something to write? One is here. Uh, one is here and one here. Now, just to remind you about the rules uh, in the forum. First of all, a good question at the Kennedy School has three elements. The first is that you identify yourself. The second is that it is quite short, having one thought. It is not a speech. And the third is that it ends with a question mark. I will be here to enforce these rules. Let me start right over here. Yes, uh, hi, Mr. President. My name is uh, Juan Mejia. I'm an APA student here at the Kennedy School from Venezuela. Uh, I believe your speech was very interesting, uh, especially the difference or the necessity to 
talk about freedom when we talk about justice, but I also believe that we have to do the other way around. And uh, you mentioned uh, human rights at the beginning of your speech and at the end, and uh, you also mentioned uh, on about a month ago that Maduro, our president in our country, was incapable of, incapable of being repressive. Uh, the latest Amnesty International report says that hundreds of people have been injured, uh, there have been torturers, and, and also I know friends of mine that one, for example, lost an eye because the impact of a tear gas bomb hit him. So my question is, uh, do you still believe today that the Venezuelan government is incapable of violating, violating human rights? And before you disqualify my question, uh, I just wanted to add that the day after the protests began, you said that the deaths that arrived in our country were the consequence of an irresponsible opposition. But the authorities have now recognized that it was actually a policeman who killed these people and who started all this mess. Thank you. Well, that, thank you very much for your question, but this is your information and your opinion. I continue with my opinion that, well, Maduro is incapable of repression. And, well, they have very serious uh, demonstrations and violent demonstrations in Venezuela. That is clear. And I don't know what information do you have, but we have also information. For instance, after uh, 2013 presidential election in Venezuela, we, we knew that the opposition uh, gave just one year for the government of Maduro. They wanted to destabilize, destabilize this government. And well, the information was accurate. And uh, according to, we have ambassador, everything there. And at least half of the deaths are is consequence of the violence of the oppositors, not of the government. Well, you have another information. I have mine. Anyway, and when you have thousands of policemen, it's very difficult to control any, well, to control the violence of everyone. But at least six policemen have died. <coughs> you know that? At least six policemen. So Ecuador is a peaceful country. We look for the peace in Venezuela, but respecting the democratic government right now. Our foreign affairs minister with other two foreign affairs ministers, Brazilian one and Colombia, Colombia one, they are in, uh, intermediating in order to, to put two sides in the table of negotiation to, to try to, to, to stop violence. And for the first time, first time the opposition uh, has agreed to talk to the government. They, right now, it was today or yesterday? Today, well, Capri has accepted to talk to the government. So it's a peaceful way to solve the problem in Venezuela. Nobody wants violence. But well, the demonstrators are not peaceful most part of the time. And uh, the democratic government must be respected. They want to destabilize democratic government. That cannot be accepted. Right Hi, um, President Cor uh, Correa. Uh, my name is Paul Lisker. I'm a computer scientist and government uh, concentrator here at the college. I was born in Mexico. Um, 
I was very happy to see a recent transition of power in Mexico. And uh, looking to the future of your country, I was wondering where you see yourself in five years or in uh, 10 years in terms of uh, your political ambitions and your role in, in Ecuadorian uh, politics. As, it, uh, as a student here in John F. Kennedy School of Government, you know? <laughs> you know, I come from academia. And the only thing that I like more than teaching or to teach? Teaching. Teaching is learning. So I love to study. Anyway, we are discussing about relation in Ecuador. We can discuss everything. We are free. But uh, I haven't changed my decision that uh, not to run for relation. But, uh, well, circumstances can change. We, I, I have a responsibility also. But no, you, you can laugh. But people knowing me, they know very well that uh, I would like to, to retire in 2017, not just for the presidency, but also from the political life. But not always it's possible to do what someone wants. Anyway, we are discussing several things in Ecuador. We have complete freedom to do so. We are not colony. We are a sovereign country. But uh, in 2017, usually, my term is over. My term is over, OK? Right up here. Right here. Good night, President Correa. My name is Alfredo Guerra. I'm a graduate student here at the Kennedy School of Government. I'm also from Venezuela. Um, I really believe, in, I really respect your proper policies and effort you've been putting in the region. I think that's something that's needed and was missing uh, across uh, all the countries in Latin America. But regarding the human rights thing, I cannot help but ask you again. By this point, like more than 30 people have been killed, including uh, people that were pregnant women, like beauty pageants, students, mothers, they all been killed. Um, we have all family members. Clearly, there's a disagreement in the country. One might say it's been one side or the other. Uh, after the presidential elections in 2013, 49% of the country disagreed with the president. 51% agreed with him. There's clearly half of the country is for and against his policies. So do you think the dialogue might have helped avoid of course. all the people that have been killed this far? How would you have done as a government? to improve what have been done by the Venezuelan government at this point? You can disagree with the government, but you have to respect the terms of that government. I, I, I not dispute your figures, perhaps. They are right, they are wrong. But beside that, well, you can disagree with the government. You can not uh, like a government, but if you, if you are in a democratic system, you have to, to wait for the for that government to, to finish, to finish its term. And related to violence, I insist. It's a very difficult situation. You have thousands of people in the streets. You have to control public, private, uh, pro, public pro, uh, property, private property, etc. cetera. Uh, I think we have information, we have the proof that violence, there were, there were very uh, several demonstrations, violent demonstrations. So what is this supposed to do? They are looking for, some groups are looking for violence, I, I are looking for incidents. For this reason, the only way to, 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 
solve the situation is through dialogue and just that is the uh, that is happening right now thanks to the intervention of uh, UNASUR. Uh, another thing I am forgetting, sorry, just a second, that you mentioned. Mm. Yeah, how, how would you enhance dialogue even in a prior date than how it's happening in Venezuela? Would you have done it differently? Well, you have, uh, if there is violent demonstration, you have to protect public property, private property, other people, rights, etc. So it is very difficult to, to handle a situation where some groups want, want violence, are looking for violence. And that is clear that happened in Venezuela. Okay, okay. right over here. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, muchas gracias, Presidente. Uh, Korea, um, it's a great honor to hear you. My name is Sita Gofard. I'm a junior at the college, and I major in economics with a focus in development. Um, so I wanted to ask you, it was just very recently that you announced your intention to raise uh, $700 million um, on the international capital markets to finance infrastructure projects in Ecuador. Uh, there haven't been too many details yet, so I just wanted to ask you, um, what is your specific plan, your specific vision uh, for um, how this money and how these infrastructure projects will be used most efficaciously to promote development in Ecuador. And at the same time, can you guarantee that Ecuador will be able to honor all of its obligations to uh, your foreign creditors? Thank you. Well, you know, uh, our national budget is financed. We have several sources of financing, not just international market. Uh, bilateral financing, uh, multilateral by financing, etc. So this is one of the sources. I don't think, uh, well, I, I don't know what is uh, uh, surprising uh, there. So I cannot give you more information because it's just, uh, we're planning all this. Anyway, of course, if we participate again in the international market, we, as usual, go to honor this debt. Perhaps you are referring to our strategy to renegotiate the former external debt of the Ecuador. This external debt was completely illegal. We, we made an audit of this external debt and the things that we found were really, really terrible. So for this reason, we stopped paying this debt, but a legal sovereign, uh, more than sovereign, legal, uh, legitimate debt has been always honored by our country okay. and by my government. Okay. Right over here. Thank you. Good afternoon, President. My name is Carolina Silva Portero. I am Ecuadorian and I am a first year doctoral student at Harvard Law School. My question is the following. So since the 1970s, Ecuadorian economy is based on the extraction of natural resources, especially on oil extraction, which is inserted internationally in the market economy. My question is, if you say that development is a political process, does the political process of Ecuador consider the option of getting out of that model of development? Is, Ecuador, is the Ecuadorian government thinking of alternatives 
to economic ex to, to the extraction of natural res resources in the long term, and if it is, uh, what are the steps that the government is taking? Thank well, you. Development is basically a political process, not only a political process. It's a technical one too. I mentioned that it's, it's mm -hmm. a uh, it needs also cultural changes. We face several restrictions, and we, you have to use your resources. Among them, non-renewable resources, like any other country in the world. That doesn't mean to destroy them, it's to use them with responsibility, environmental responsibility and social responsibility. And of course, we want to, as you expressed, to getting out of this model, extractivism, in English, Extractivism, but some people believe that you can do so, stopping oil production, stopping mining, etc. Perhaps you go to get out of the extractivism model to go back to the collector model. Okay, you have to use to move these resource resources to other sectors of the economy. For instance, knowledge, human talent science, technology, it's just that what we are doing. It's just that why I am here today, because this visit to the United States is to do that, contact with some universities in order to, to, to strengthen our relations, strengthen our relations uh, to cooperate with our university, with our, our research institutes, etc. So, uh, to, to Superar. To overcome the extractivist model is to use these resources in order to develop other sectors of the economy. Tourism, for instance. You, you saw the video. Uh, but especially, our, we are emphasizing human talent. We have gave almost 8,000 scholarships right now. I don't know, you have a scholarship? I received the scholarship last year for my LLM degree. From? For my LLM, the Master of Laws, the Senecida scholarship I received last year. Public institution. That is the way <laughs> to overcome extractivism, not to close the pipelines, no? not to renounce to our non-renewable resources, but to move this income from the non-renewable resources to other sectors of the economy, especially human talent, science, technology. Okay. Hello, Mr. President. Uh, thank you so much for your speech. My name is Ana Carneiro. I study economics and government in the college, and I'm from Rio, Brazil. So I definitely agree with you that God's Brazilian. And <laughs> my question is about the negotiations of uh, Ecuador to join Mercosur, and if the recent creation of Pacific Alliance against the Pacific can slow or could cancel this process. Thank we you. We understand this possibility, you know, to enter Mercosur, but you should be aware of one very important thing, that we don't have national currency. When you don't have national currency, you don't have a change rate. The change rate is the most important instrument to balance, to solve any external problem. 
But if you don't have that instrument, the other policies you want, there are a different, there are, there is a difference between policy and instrument. No? A policy has, has instruments. Okay. Another policy is the trade policy, commercial policy. That means to put aranceles, tariff, quotes, etc., in import goods. If you lose this policy and these instruments, tariff, quotes, etc., well, you have nothing in order to quote it. You have nothing in order to equilibrate your economy. You are a problem in your extern external sector. For this reason, we have to be very prudent when we analyze to enter in a, this kind of, if you want, uh, commercial agreement. We are studying to enter in UNASUR. We are asking to Mercosur, sorry, to uh, Mercosur countries to have some flexibility towards Ecuador because we don't have national currency. With respect to Alianza del Pacifico, this is a free market, you know, for a country without national currency to enter an agreement, free market agreement, is close to suicide, social suicide. So we don't go to enter to, at least as long as I am president, we don't go, we are not going to enter the Alianza del Pacifico, okay? Right over here, please. Thank you, uh, President Correa. It's a real pleasure to have you here to meet you. Um, my question, actually, my name is William Chiriguayo, Chiriguayo. I'm also Ecuadorian-American, uh, and I am a PhD candidate in the history department here at Harvard. And so my question in a room full of lawyers and economists and political scientists will probably be a little bit different. Uh, you've, you've mentioned currency on a few occasions, uh, not just in your speech, but in answering some of these questions. And I'm actually curious about this. It's, it's the matter of what, it's what I study, actually. And currency isn't, in my view, just a matter of uh, economics. It's also a matter of national pride and self-determination. And I'm curious if your administration has, or, or what your administration's plans are for an Ecuadorian currency along those lines. Uh, what does it mean when Ecuadorian citizens are circulating Abraham Lincoln or Washington, George Washington instead of Vicente Rocafuerte or the Galapagos tortoise? You're right. Uh, national currency is a very important economic instrument. It's a motive of national pride. It's a sign, sign symbol of sovereignty and we lost it. Uh, it's also, perhaps you forgot mention it, the most important social instrument to, to get social coordination. So we, yes, it's a problem. That was a, dollarization was a, a huge technical mistake. And not just technical mistake, political, social mistake, but in, eco in economics, it's very easy to, to do some things. And later, it's very difficult to undone and do undo these things. So if I want, see, I will try, I will try to finish dollarization, it will be, a, 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 well, a, a social economic cause in Ecuador is not possible. 
perhaps an alternative in the medium term is to look for a regional currency in Inasur, the Andean region, etc. But to exceed dollarization is, in the short term at least, impossible. Okay. Right over here. Yeah. Um, uh, good evening, uh, President. I'm here. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your speech. Uh, my name is Ayub Dera. I'm a mid-career MPA here at the Kennedy School. Uh, actually, I'm very. Um, I, I admire your um, social and economic program. The way you achieve, uh, you know, um, you, you have great social achievement. It's it's really good. And I know that those who lost their privileges in Latin America in general, and in Ecuador in particular, they want to stick back these counter-revolutionary forces. However, are you not falling in their trap uh, by, for example, like restricting the freedom of the press? The um, Ecuadorian government have been, uh, you know, the, the, the Ecuador as a country, declined in all the rankings of the freedom of the press, and how come the country that granted asylum to Julian Assange, uh, the hero of uh, freedom of the press, uh, you know, have such uh, you know, bad achievement, let's say, in terms of freedom of speech? What can you say about this? Have you visited Ecuador? So, sorry? Have you visited Ecuador? Uh, Am do I you what? know? Do you? No. I, I'm, I'm just I'm looking at okay. the, the rankings. Maybe they're, that, maybe they're to bad. See yeah. There is, we don't have freedom of expression, okay? There is so lack of freedom of press that they can publish it in front pages every day in their newspapers, you know? That is not true. I don't know who tells you that. Yes, we have a very strong campaign in order to, to make people believe that. But it is the political opposition that we have to face too, you know? But come to our country. To see yourself, is there is no freedom of expression or freedom of press. And about Julian Assange, well, according to international law, we can give asylum to every citizen in the world. And according to the foundation letter of the United Nations, any citizen in the world can't request for asylum. So we ex just we exercise, exercise our sovereign right, you know? Uh, and why? We do not justify what uh, Assange uh, did. But there were clear evidences that the due process was in danger. For this reason, we, in order to protect his human rights, we gave him the asylum. Okay? Come to Ecuador to see yourself. Thank you, Mr. President. My name is Ann McDonald, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Um, you've mentioned several times your commitment to um, raising levels of prosperity for your people. And I wanted to ask, then, um, what are some of the motivations um, behind your policies and statements that could possibly be characterized as antagonistic towards your largest trading partner um, in, in terms of the United States? And also, um,
And right. also um, wanted to ask about your um, position on the expulsion of the United States from the base in Manta and what motivated that. Well, <laughs> I made my, myself very clear this time there when we, we were discussing about continuing with the base in Manta. We can continue with this American base in our country if U.S. allowed us to have an Ecuadorian base in Miami. <laughs> if, this, if, if it is nothing wrong with that, so we can install our Ecuadorian base in, in Miami. Of course, I am still waiting for the answer, first thing. <laughs> Secondly, uh, yes, it's the same campaign that in Ecuador there is no free press, free freedom of expression, etc. that I am anti-American. That doesn't make sense. I study here. I have two diplomas from American University. <laughs> I, I passed here, spent here four years, the, one of the happiest years in my life. So that doesn't make sense. But we go to criticize what we consider that is wrong especially foreign policies of the United States. For instance, every year, every year, with all due respect, every year the State Department uh, publishes a report about human rights. But you know what? I mentioned in my speech that Ecuador has signed every uh, Inter-American instrument of human rights. In total, they are eight. Do you know how many has signed? U.S. zero, none. So, well, you know, it's kind of bothersome. It's kind of <laughs> annoying <laughs> to have every year a report on human rights from the State Department, always against lefty government in South America or Latin America when the United States has not signed any single instrument, inter-American instrument about human rights. So it's our right, but also our duty to show this contradiction. And for this reason, sometimes the media, the political actors in the states uh, pretend to show us as anti-American. I am not anti-American. Uh, I am anti-double standard, anti uh, the lack of truth, the lack of logic, the lack of justice, and we will co to continue denouncing all these double standards. Okay. Hello, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Ignacio Samerene. I'm an Ecuadorian student at Brown University studying Latin American development. Um, my question runs on a little bit of a different topic. Um, I'd like to ask you specifically about Yasuni. Um, maybe perhaps looking forward, um, because Ecuador has had a history of um, problematic resource extraction. We've seen the Chevron case. We've seen, especially in the Amazon, this has happened time and time again. And you've made various claims after approving extraction in Yasuni that this will be responsible extraction and responsible resource management. And I was wondering 
what will be different this time and if it will set a precedent to move ahead in the future? Because in the Revolución Ciudad, we have, the, we have already several things to show. For instance, Panacocha is one of oil project entirely made during our government. It has won several prizes at world level because of uh, the responsible uh, extraction, social responsibility, environmental responsibility, etc. So you can see that um, with the same technology, with the same care, we're going to extract the oil from the Yasuni. But also here, there is a lot of manipulation, a lot of misinformation, because uh, the oppositors to our decision to extract oil from the Yasuni National Park are telling that is all or nothing. That means I, I want to mean. It's oil or the Yasuni. That is not true. 